0: other people exercise the power of prosecutors rather than those people who've been elected, especially people who ran on progressive platforms.
1: Conservative lawmakers put limits on progressive prosecutors. For Sunday, August 20th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ping Huang. The Sour, the World Cup, goes to Spain, the final game showcased new stars in women's soccer. They are reaping rewards of all the women that have gone before them, who have popularized the game, made the game what it is. We'll talk through a historic World Cup win and what it means for the future of the women's game. Plus, producer Ruben Cannon on the art of
2: casting in Hollywood. Always hire actors that are superior to the role they have to play. Meaning that if you're casting an actor to play cop number one, he should be capable of doing the lead. Because everyone starts somewhere.
3: First, the sneeze. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass signed a declaration of local emergency as Tropical Storm Hillary heads towards Southern California. The National Weather Service has put the area of Los Angeles, Long Beach, and Glendale under a flash flood warning. and NPR's Julia Simons reports from Santa Monica that locals are preparing for intense rain and possible flash flooding. Southern California
4: communities have been lining up at fire stations to fill bags with sand and going to grocery stores to grab food and water. Now that the rain has begun, the LA mayor and other officials are urging residents to stay safe and stay home and to stay off the roads and out of their cars. In hurricanes, rainfall flooding is the number one killer, like when people drive into water not knowing how deep it is. In a press event this morning, the Los Angeles fire chief warned of sustained winds and flash floods. Officials urge residents to ensure that devices are charged and to be ready to evacuate if they get an alert. Julia Simon, Pierre News, Santa Monica.
3: The storm came ashore on Mexico's Baja Peninsula this morning, leaving at least one person dead. It's a big week for Republican politics, with the first debate taking place on Wednesday in Milwaukee. It's not clear if former President Donald Trump, the frontrunner for that nomination, will be there. He has said he will instead talk with former Fox anchor Tucker Carlson. All this as Trump and his 18 co-defendants report to jail to be booked this week. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler has more.
5: The D.A. gave a deadline of Friday at noon for everyone, including Trump, to surrender to the Fulton County Jail. That gives Trump a lot of leeway to pick and choose the best time for him to get a lot of media impact, like maybe Wednesday to overshadow the debate. But we'll have to see because everybody should be getting booked, including mugshots.
3: Stephen Fowler reporting. Denmark and the Netherlands say they will be sending F-16 warplanes to Ukraine. A decision announced as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky toured a Dutch airbase. Terry Schultz reports Ukraine has long been pleading with NATO governments to supply the fighter aircraft.
4: Denmark and the Netherlands have already started training Ukrainian pilots to fly F-16s. Now Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte says the two countries are going
6: further. There's no point in providing training if no F-16s are available. In other words, aircraft training requires delivery of aircraft.
4: Ruta says he's not yet sure how many F-16s will be transferred to Kiev, but assured Ukrainian President Zelensky of continued strong support.
6: It may be a war on Ukrainian soil, but it is not Ukraine's fight alone, our Collective values are at stake too.
4: The two countries needed and got permission from the United States for both the training and the transfer of the jets since they're manufactured in the U.S. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz.
3: And you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
5: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Tomorrow, the Healy administration will announce $141 million in awards as part of the state's student loan repayment program. 3,000 primary care and behavioral health providers will get a share of the funds to pay off their student loans. In return, they'll work for two years in an underserved Massachusetts community. The president of Wellesley College is joining the leaders of a dozen universities to promote free speech on campuses. Wellesley President Paula Johnson says the country is polarized. And students need to be able to learn from each other and talk across their differences.
6: We strongly believe that the diversity we've been able to bring together on our campuses is essential to the quality of the educational experience that we provide, both inside the classroom and outside the classroom.
5: The college leaders say they want to uphold and advance the principles of free expression and critical inquiry. In Worcester this week, the city council is expected to consider two proposals regulating crisis pregnancy centers. The Worcester patch reports the proposals would govern how businesses advertise services. The centers generally promote themselves using language similar to abortion clinics and then steer women away from getting the procedure. The measures were proposed by a counselor more than a year ago. Funeral services will be held this week for the 44-year-old Lynn woman, who drowned last week while trying to save her 10-year-old son at a waterfall in New Hampshire's White Mountains. A wake for Melissa Bagley will be held Wednesday at a funeral home in Lynn. A funeral mass is scheduled for Thursday morning at St. John the Evangelist Church in Swampscott. The Red Sox completed a three-game sweep of the Yankees in the Bronx this afternoon. The final score, the Sox on top, 6-5. to five. Clear skies tonight, temps in the mid-60s, partly sunny again tomorrow, mid-80s, a chance of showers and thunderstorms tomorrow night, and then mostly sunny skies return Tuesday.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life.
1: Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From NPR News, it's all things considered. I'm Ping Huang. August 9th started like any other day for Monique Worrell. She was driving to her job as the state attorney for Florida's ninth Judicial Circuit. Then things took a turn.
6: I received a call from my deputy chief who started the call by saying, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm on my way into the office. And he said, no, I heard that you were being removed. Just
1: then she says she gets another call from her chief investigator.
6: Who in a very robotic tone, said that he had been asked to read me a notification, and he began reading the notification of my suspension.
1: A suspension basically meant she was fired.
2: Refusing to faithfully enforce the laws of Florida puts our communities in danger and victimizes innocent Floridians.
1: And the person who fired her was Florida Governor and Republican presidential candidate Ron
2: DeSantis. Effective immediately. I'm appointing Judge Andrew Bain to take over as state attorney for the Ninth Judicial Circuit.
1: Now, this was a big deal. State attorney is an elected position in Florida, and Monique Worrell ran in 2020 on a progressive platform. She promised alternatives to prison for first-time and nonviolent offenders, to not prosecute low-level marijuana offenses, and to change the way juvenile cases were handled. And she won big, with more than 66% of the vote. That's why Worrell calls DeSantis'
6: decision to remove her an attack on democracy. In a democracy, the people decide who they want to represent them, not the governor. That's a dictatorship.
1: The thing is, this dynamic is playing out all over the country from Pennsylvania to Texas to Missouri, conservative state governments have taken steps to undercut locally elected liberal prosecutors. They say they're too soft on crime. Now, the politics of crime and punishment have been a moving target. Let's go back to 2018.
5: Now to a very positive note, criminal justice reform.
1: At this point, crime rates had been declining for decades, but at the same time, the U.S. had the highest per capita incarceration rate in the world. That year, former President Donald Trump signed a criminal justice bill with huge bipartisan support. It was a major overhaul that shortened many sentences and limited the three strikes penalties that had automatically triggered long prison terms. While that was happening nationally, a wave of progressive prosecutors were sweeping into office trying to bring down incarceration rates at the local level. And fast forward to now, the politics have changed again. The murder rate shot up in 2020, making crime a big election issue. And Trump, who signed that big bill reducing sentences five years ago, has now changed his tune. Here he is speaking with Fox News this summer.
2: You've said you'd be in favor of the death penalty for drug dealers. Still the case? Yeah, it's the only way you're going to stop it.
1: It's in that context that Ron DeSantis, currently in a primary fight against Donald Trump, started taking on progressive prosecutors in his state. Last year, he suspended the state attorney in Tampa. This month, it was Monique Worrell.
2: Prosecutors do have a, a certain amount of discretion about which cases to bring and which not. Uh, but what this state attorney has done is abuse that discretion and has effectively nullified certain laws in the state of Florida.
1: When I spoke with Monique Worrell this past week, I asked her about some of the arguments DeSantis made in removing her. He alleges that your office was dropping or declining to file charges that could have been proven in
6: order to avoid triggering mandatory minimum sentences. So I'm wondering, what's your response to that? That's false we never dropped any cases to avoid triggering a minimum mandatory. Prosecutors have long since, prior to me ever thinking of running for this office, had discretion to plea and charge bargain, to find a resolution that was best for the community, that was best for the individual. And sometimes that involves the dropping of charges. Sometimes that involves negotiations that Don't include minimum mandatory sentences, but that wasn't something that was done as a practice. It was done on a case-by-case basis when it was in the best interest of the community. The governor
1: raised a few specific cases, including one of a 17-year-old who was facing weapons charges but was released and then went on to shoot and kill his pregnant girlfriend. So given what happened in that case, I'm wondering, do you think your office should have done anything differently?
6: No, because what's very important to understand is that the criminal legal system is made up of several components. The prosecutor's office is just one. That particular case dealt with a case that was brought to us by the sheriff's office. The sheriff's department never made an arrest in that case because they did not have enough evidence to do so. In fact, the lead detective sent over the case for our review saying that they don't think that they can get beyond stand your ground. In that case. So there was nothing for the state attorney's office to file charges on. And yes, it's awful that that same young man ended up later being arrested in a different case involving a homicide. But there's absolutely nothing that my office could have done differently to stop that from happening.
1: I want to ask you about the platform that you ran on. So back in 2020, you campaigned for the job and you won on trying to reduce mass incarceration. And DeSantis is now arguing that your policies have made the community less safe. Do you think this is true? Is there a trade-off between lower incarceration rates
6: and lower crime rates? That's part of the false narrative that has been pushed by DeSantis and local law enforcement. But the reality is that crime has decreased since I took office, not increased. So there's no plausible way that my policies could have made the community less safe. What we did is exactly what I said that I would do, is that we would ensure that nonviolent offenders who did not need to be sent to prison to keep the community safe would have an opportunity to um, be involved in programs that would help them to have a second chance and to become productive members of our community. And I've always said that violent individuals who are a danger to our community will go to prison. And they have, many for life sentences. You've said that you're going to continue to
1: run for re-election in 2024. Can I ask why, if DeSantis can just
6: suspend you again? Because when you are faced with authoritarian practices, you don't just lay down and take it. I will run, and if the law finds that this is legal, be removed as many times as it takes for us as a society to realize that this is undemocratic and we must not stand for this. And I intend to fight.
1: Monique Worrell is a suspended state attorney for Orange and Osceola counties in Florida. Monique, thank you for joining us.
6: Thank you so much. And I prefer to be referred to as the duly elected state attorney for Orange and Osceola counties. Although the governor has issued a suspension, it is important for people to know and understand that I am still the duly elected state attorney.
1: And as we've mentioned, this backlash against progressive prosecutors isn't just in Florida. When I spoke about this with Carissa Byrne-Hessek, director of the Prosecutors and Policy Project at the University of North Carolina, she told me there are three broad strategies that state authorities are using.
0: The first category I like to think of as circumvention, where state officials are trying to have other people exercise the power of prosecutors rather than those people who've been elected, especially people who ran on progressive platforms. So we saw that in Tennessee, for example, where if a prosecutor was declining to bring certain types of cases, then the state attorney general could step in. The second category, I think of more as sanctions. This is where I would put Ron DeSantis' decisions to remove two prosecutors in his states. He's punishing them for the decisions that they have made. We've also seen bills introduced uh, to allow people to sue their local prosecutor if they didn't bring charges in a particular way. And then the last category, which is probably the most dramatic, it's a takeover. This is what we saw in, in Mississippi, where the Mississippi state legislature decided to carve out a piece of Jackson, Mississippi. And instead of having the locally elected prosecutor be in charge of that piece
1: of the city, they're appointing a prosecutor instead. I wanted to point out that it's not just exclusively Republican state officials pushing back on liberal prosecutors. You know, for example, in Oakland, California, we saw the local NAACP blame District Attorney Pamela Price for what they described as an intolerable public safety crisis, and there's a group seeking to recall her. So what do we make of this sort of force coming out in a state like California? Is, is some of it motivated by a real concern from citizens? I mean, I think it is, not everyone agrees with these policies
0: just because they are a Democrat. So I'm not surprised to see some pushback from community groups whose members generally vote for Democratic candidates. At the same time, progressive prosecutors have been incredibly successful. Like our research at the Prosecutors and Politics Project shows that progressive candidates win at a much higher rate than candidates more generally. So I think that there are a number of people, especially people who live in communities like Oakland that have a lot of crime, who want people who are going to do something different. But that doesn't mean that you won't be criticized by other people in your community because they think that your policies aren't
1: the right way to reduce crime. How can progressive prosecutors address those concerns without going back to the policies of the past decades that led to just a staggering rate of incarceration in the U.S.?
0: One thing that progressive prosecutors often say is that if you want to reduce crime, you need to look at policies outside of the criminal justice system. You have to address things like poverty, housing segregation. The problem is, those things are, to the extent that they're controlled by the government at all, controlled by people who have other offices. So it's complicated for the progressive prosecutor to come into office, and then if crime spikes, talk about what they will do to address it, Mm -hmm. because the progressive prosecutor ethos is built on this idea that the criminal justice system is about doing justice, and if you want to reduce crime, you need to think more broadly about what justice really means.
1: Carissa Bernhesick is the director of the Prosecutors and Policy Project at the University of North Carolina. This is NPR News.
5: And thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Glad you're with us. And coming up next at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour. And climate change is among the topics tonight. Speaking of the climate, clear skies overnight with temperatures falling to the mid-60s. Partly sunny. Another nice day tomorrow with temps in the mid-80s. A chance of showers and thunderstorms tomorrow night. And then mostly sunny skies return with temperatures in the mid-70s on Tuesday. It's 84 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Electro-pop singer FC headlines our last Sound On musical festival of the summer at City Space. It's coming up this Thursday, August 24th, and you can get tickets at WBUR.org events.
3: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. It's a big week for Republican politics, with the first debate taking place on Wednesday in Milwaukee. It's not clear if former president Donald Trump, the front-runner for the nomination, will be there. All this as Trump and his 18 co-defendants are expected to report to jail to be booked this week. The final game of a major soccer competition drew a lot of excitement to Nashville this weekend, thanks to the arrival of Inter-Miami star Lionel Messi, who led his team to its first title in club history. And Blue beat Pink at the weekend box office. As Blue Beetle took the top spot with $25 million in ticket sales, Barbie came in second. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington.
7: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From Jarl and Pamela Mon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people At WTGrantFDN.org.
1: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ping Huang.
8: And I'm Elsa Chang. Every now and then, I'm watching a movie that pulls me in so deeply, I totally forget that the people on screen are actors. Well, you know, every film crew has a person whose job it is to pick those actors, the ones who bring to life and make us believe what we're watching. You see, behind every great character on screen is a casting director. A casting director's trained eye finds just the right face, the right voice, the right soul of a character within an actor.
2: When you audition, you hear the dialogue read by any number of actors. But someone will come in and say those words it's like Ray Charles singing "America the Beautiful." You will hear it for the first time in a new way, and that's what I would look for. I would look for that Ray Charles moment.
8: That was former casting director Ruben Cannon, who appears in the latest season of the Academy Museum podcast. It's called Close Up on Casting. It looks at the art and history of casting in Hollywood. It's hosted by the director and president of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, Jacqueline Stewart. She joins us now, along with former casting director and now film producer, Ruben Cannon. Welcome to both of you. Thank Thank you. you. So Jacqueline, I want to start with you. This particular season traces, you know, the history behind casting in Hollywood, which began with the studio system in the 1920s before the actual job of casting director even existed. Can you talk about how casting worked in those earlier days?
9: Sure, I mean, we have to think about the way that the classic Hollywood studio system really worked as a a factory operation, you know? um, Directors were assigned to particular projects, as was every other crew member, and that was true for actors as well. So the studio heads were really making these decisions. The producers were making these decisions. And for the most part, they were casting actors to play the same kinds of types that were dictated by the way that they looked. So your age would dictate the kinds of roles you would get. Your gender would dictate the kinds of roles that you got. And it was really confining in terms of the kind of choice that actors had. There really wasn't a whole lot of choice. And and many actors were punished for refusing or offering resistance to playing particular roles. So it was very rigid and assembly line kind of
8: operation. Totally. Talk more about that rigidity, because actors were typecast so tightly back then. The descriptions that studio executives and some big shot directors would use to describe, especially women actors, they were so flattening. Like, can you give us some specific examples? Absolutely.
9: Um, we look at the casting of Rebecca, the I 1940 so Hitchcock film.
4: I try my best every day, but very difficult with people looking me up and down
5: as if I were a prize cow.
9: And uh, look at some of the see screen, screen tests for man. various actors who were up for the role, like yeah. Vivian yeah. Lee and Anne Baxter. It's hard to imagine anybody else but Joan Fontaine playing that role, but others were being considered. And there's a series of memos that... Alfred Hitchcock was writing to the producer, David O. Selznick, that give you a sense of how crass sometimes and superficial these evaluations could be. So, for example, Alicia Rett is described as being homely and a bit too old. Um, Betty Campbell is described as being too ordinary, too chocolate box.
8: And wasn't someone compared to
9: porcelain or china?
8: Yes, yes. Miriam Patty
9: is described as too much Dresden China. <laughs> Dang. These the shorthand ways of characterizing these artists clearly is not thinking about, oh, here is how we might cultivate this person, here's how we might you know, reveal different layers of what they can do, which fortunately is what happened later on as pioneering casting directors really began to work in a more nuanced way. Mm-hmm.
8: Exactly, let's talk about that. The whole studio system started to get dismantled in 1948 and casting directors started to come about. And I wanna I wanna go to you, Ruben Cannon, because you are yourself a casting director pioneer. You were the first African-American casting director in Hollywood. You casted for films like The Color Purple. You were the head of television casting for Warner Brothers for some time. And I just love the story of how you got into this business. You literally started in the mailroom at Universal Studios, right? I mean, that almost reads like a screenplay already.
2: <laughs> well, x is, is pretty common because they they give these fancy names to these departments. Universal referred to the mailroom as a, the executive training program. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, it's a, and you had to you were required to wear a shirt and a tie and a suit and you delivered mail throughout the lot. I tell the story that everything I need to know about Hollywood I learned in Chicago on my paper route. And on my paper route there were three rules that you had to need to follow. One, deliver the newspaper every day, get to know your customers so you can collect your fee for delivering the paper. Uh, Number three, the most important, don't get robbed. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> a good was, one, yes. <laughs> exactly. So how do those <laughs> principles apply to Hollywood? So I'm now in the mail room delivering mail to Hitchcock, Paul Newman. Uh, Al Wallace you know, on the studio lot, and well, the same thing: deliver the mail promptly on time. Get to know the people you're delivering to, because you may need a letter of recommendation. And number three, don't let anyone rob you of your dream. And, <laughs> oh, um So yeah. the mailroom, um, you know, it was truly it was an opportunity to learn from the ground up and how a studio functions. Well, you eventually worked your way up in the studio to become
8: a casting director, and I'm curious, Ruben. What do you think it is about you personally and the way that you relate to people that made casting such a natural fit
2: for you? Well, the person that hired me to work in casting was a gentleman named Ralph Winters. Ralph Winters was the head of casting for Universal Television. And Ralph Winters gave me the mantra that I've used, which is that Ruben always hire actors that are superior to the role they have to play. Hmm. What did he mean by that? Well, meaning that if you're casting an actor to play cop number one, he should be capable of doing the lead because everyone starts somewhere. You know, Denzel, you know, was doing small roles before he became, you know, a star, everyone starts. So the casting director job is to identify you casting for, you know, for the, for the future. So they, you know, yeah. give the first job to that actor. Years ago, I hired John Travolta for a role in a TV show that was called Emergency. He had two lines an actor who had taken a fall and sprained his ankle.
9: Man, I never thought anybody would find me here. Is there anything wrong with you beside that leg there? Yeah, my shoulder. <laughs> Let's
2: see. You know, once again, he was far superior to the, what the role required.
8: Wait, wait, this is before Grease and Saturday Night Fever? Like, way before that? You saw John
2: Travolta? Oh, absolutely. Wow. He's not just there as a background atmospheric player. He's there present as an actor.
9: And this point that Ruben is making is so illuminating. It was for me because This is where the discipline and the nuance of knowledge of a casting director becomes so important because part of what you all do is you recognize things that the producers don't necessarily see, that the director may not see. And I was really struck by how often you and other casting directors talked about going to bat for particular actors and really insisting, no, you've got to look at this person because you're thinking about craft and skill and open to possibilities they can really bring something transformative to a project.
2: Well, what's exciting about casting is that you really don't know it till you see it. And that's the exciting part. You may have one idea in mind, and an actor comes in with that and gives you that Ray Charles moment. You so say, I never thought about it that way, but wow, how exciting is that? And I've told the story many times about Bruce Willis in Moonlighting, that, you know, when casting that TV series.
7: What are you doing now? Looking up the word nefarious, he said his son might be involved in something nefarious or a nefarious, something unspeakably wicked.
2: I had heard that role read so many times that then all of a sudden Bruce comes in, and gives it a whole new spin because he was not the network's definition of a leading man. In fact, they—they they, I was fired because I kept bringing him back to the studio as the lead and they say "Ruben, obviously you don't know what a leading man is
8: but good for you for sticking to what you believed and look he carried moonlighting i mean with sybil shepherd they of, were course, of course of yeah. course exactly
2: exactly but they but they that was not their definition as jacqueline talked about the prototypes of what the so-called networks believe of at that time
8: well given all the nuance that you have to consider when you are picking an actor to fill a role How important is it that casting directors reflect a diverse array of lived experiences and identities?
2: It's the only way you're going to ever achieve any degree of um, reflection of society if you don't have people in the room that does reflect society. Mm -hmm. I know personally for me, I've cast enough shows that if it were not for my presence as a black man, the role would not have been cast to black actors, women, but particularly when it comes to black actors. You know, my presence there, so I could bring up a name, and either out of fear or, or my persuasiveness, you know, the producers and directors say yes. Now, once again, I'm offering them actors that are superior to the role. This is not tokenism. This is not mm-hmm. doing anyone a favor. This is going to be an enhancement to the project. Yeah.
8: Jacqueline, I want to come back to you because we're talking about the discriminatory ways in which Hollywood has long operated. And earlier, You know, you were mentioning the unique challenges that women face when they're being cast in roles. Can you talk about how that has changed or maybe has not changed over the years? Well, the number of leading roles for women
9: has increased over time. It's still not reflective of the population. (laughs) Hmm. Um, We're not there yet, and largely because of the reasons that Ruben was pointing to with regard to race. There are still not enough women who are helming studios who are making the decisions, who are crafting the agendas for um, what the content is and insisting that there are women who have a variety of possibilities in front of the camera. In one of our episodes, we look at the case of Meg Ryan, who appeared in an erotic thriller uh, directed by Jane Campion called In the Cut.
4: Stream of consciousness, I'd like to point out, is not the same thing as stream of conscience, for which some of you have mistaken it. A logical error in some ways.
9: And because Meg Ryan had been sort of pigeonholed in many uh, studios' minds as a kind of rom-com queen. America's Sweetheart. Yes, yes. Uh, When Harry Met Sally and You've Got Mail. When she, in collaboration with an incredible woman filmmaker, Jane Campion, really wanted to stretch and do something different, uh, it was received very badly, particularly by male film critics And it's only after many years that the film is now, I think, getting the kind of critical reappraisal that it deserves. Um, And it was, you know, a really hard and damaging moment for her in terms of her career.
8: As both of you have been pointing out over and over again, there is so much room for Hollywood to still grow and evolve. Discriminatory behavior is still happening. A question for both of you, you know... You have noticed how casting directors often go uncredited. Their work is often unnoticed in Hollywood by the Academy. I mean, to this day, there still is not a category in the Academy Awards for casting directors. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the role of casting director is so overlooked
2: still? So if the directors did a better job of acknowledging the casting directors, the casting director status in the Academy would, would increase. So it's undervalued because the in film, the director is has the most leverage. If the directors acknowledge the casting directors, we will see a change in, in the attitude toward casting. What about yeah. you, Jacqueline?
9: You know, I've been really recognizing how the work of casting directors, that goes underappreciated, actually has a lot of lessons for how we should be approaching opening up opportunities for people across industries, in academia, in corporate America, if we were to really look at training and find ways to get around our inherent biases, to give a wider range of people opportunities to show what they are capable of doing, those are really valuable lessons that I think would open up a more inclusive environment
8: uh, across the board. Ruben Cannon. He's Hollywood's first Black casting director and now a film producer. And Jacqueline Stewart is director and president of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures and host of their podcast, including this season, Close Up on Casting. Thank you to both of you so much. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Elsa.
1: to All Things Considered from NPR News. Cheers in Madrid, tears in London. Spain's national soccer team beat England today to win the Women's World Cup. The match was played in Australia but broke TV viewing records across the world. NPR's Lauren Freyer watched alongside Britons and Spaniards outside a sports bar in London, and she joins us now. Hey, Lauren. Hi there. So, Lauren, were you sandwiched between rival fans? That sounds like it could be pretty awkward. It totally could have been,
10: but it wasn't. I mean, the atmosphere was festive and also serious. Everyone was like glued to the game. Mm -hmm. Tickets for three big fan zones here in London sold out literally within eight minutes of going online. The sports bar that I was at near Victoria Station put up giant screens outside and people crowd around like literally sitting in in, like flower planters (laughs) to watch. And when the final whistle blew after 13 minutes of stoppage time, here's what it sounded like those are spain fans cheering but also england fans clapping for them i spoke to carla gomez she's a spanish computer engineer living and working in london
4: we've always obviously supported the men and the fact that there's so many people here supporting the women um has been amazing like in the offices as well they put all the games and i think that is really inspiring and it's literally like She says
10: this is is like a celebration of women's sports. And honestly, like I expected big crowds of women, right? But where I was, it was like 50-50. There were so many men in England and Spain jerseys. And it seems like it's a blending, like less of a distinction between men's and women's teams. And, you know, these are the national teams. Hmm.
1: So a lot of camaraderie there. Totally. The, The Spanish team didn't have the smoothest ride to get here. I mean, they overcame what was described as a rebellion in their ranks. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So some of the Spanish
10: players have been unhappy with their coach. And you could see that on the field, like at their semifinal victory, the team was celebrating in one portion of the field and the coach was celebrating like kind of on his own in another part of the field. But this Spanish Mm. team got over that. Like they didn't let what the Spanish press have called a mutiny interfere with their concentration on the field. And they really dominated this game.
1: Yeah, so so if this is really a celebration of women's sports, I'm wondering where we go from here. Equal pay,
10: for one thing. I mean, that's a cause that the U.S. national team has really brought to the fore internationally. Here in England, nominally, there's equal pay for international play. Mm -hmm. But club play is where the players make the big bucks. And the average male player in England's Premier League makes, like, millions a year. And the average woman makes tens of thousands a year. So they've got a long way to go. It's a huge difference, yeah. Yeah. I mean, also women's pro leagues. Like, the best female players in the world used to go to the USA. England now has the the women's super league, Spain has Liga FA. Um, Ping, remember that movie, Bend It Like Beckham? From 20 years ago? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Yes, that that iconic movie about girls' soccer in the UK. So I spoke this week to the film's director, her name is Gurinder Chadha, and she explained this metaphor in the title of bending it, like bending the rules to achieve your goal. And she says that's what female soccer players have done in the past 20 plus years since her movie came out. Like she made that movie in the the era of stars like Mia Hamm and Brandy Chastain. And she says today's stars are standing on their shoulders.
8: That they are reaping the rewards of all the women that have gone
4: before them, who have helped popularize the game, made
1: the game what it is. That's bending it, that's right. (laughs) And that's what she means by bending it like Beckham. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
5: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks so much for being with us. Up next, at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour, and a Republican leader of the Conservative Climate Caucus and the new director of the Sierra Club talk about convincing skeptics to act on climate change
2: turn your old vehicle into new news support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to wbur details at wbur.org
5: cars the red Sox completed a three-game sweep of the yankees this afternoon six to five in the bronx clear skies tonight mid 60s partly sunny mid 80s tomorrow chance of showers and thunderstorms tomorrow night and then sunshine returns mid 70s tuesday
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo.
3: Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Tropical storm Hillary made landfall in Mexico this morning. At least one person died. This is the storm barrels to Southern California where residents are bracing for heavy rain and possibly catastrophic flooding. The storm is expected to head to Nevada tomorrow morning. Denmark and the Netherlands say they will send F-16 warplanes to Ukraine after President Volodymyr Zelensky visited Stockholm to once again request the military aircraft. And Spain won the Women's FIFA World Cup Soccer Championship in Australia today, beating England 1-0. Thousands turned out on the streets today celebrating Spain's first international trophy. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
7: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Subaru, who along with its retailers is partnering with AdoptAClassroom.org to provide funding to high-need schools in local communities for Subaru Loves Learning, Subaru more than a car company. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. This
1: is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ping Huang. And I'm going to hand things off to my colleague Rachel Martin for another conversation in her series called Enlighten Me. To start these conversations, I usually ask the guests to define their
4: spiritual identity. When I asked this of author Vanessa Zoltan, she replied that she's a Jewish atheist, Which is interesting enough, but within a couple of minutes, it started to become clear that what actually defines her outlook on the world and her spiritual life is the Holocaust. All four of her grandparents survived the Nazi concentration camps, and it shaped so much of their lives, and as a result, hers. She writes about all this in her memoir. It's called Praying with Jane Eyre. And no, Jane Eyre doesn't have anything to do with the Holocaust, but they are both integral parts of Vanessa's life. For her, the idea of God didn't survive the horrors of the Holocaust, so she has had to find a different kind of spiritual center. And she has found it in literature, specifically in Jane Eyre. Let's just pretend that
11: this is a sacred book. We're just going to pretend it's sacred and that nothing in here is an accident.
4: But that's going to be part two of our conversation, which you will hear next week. Today in part one, we'll hear how Vanessa Zoltan built a spiritual identity out of her family's trauma. And how that led her to what she describes as a calling to be an atheist chaplain in prisons and hospitals.
11: I would say genuinely like the religion that I was raised in and the theology that I was raised in was the Holocaust.
4: The theology you were raised with was the Holocaust. Yes. That is a really provocative sentence.
11: Yeah. And it's – I'm really not trying to be (laughs) provocative. I know how it sounds. But I was raised – all four of my grandparents were Auschwitz survivors – My parents were both, you know, born right after the war to recent survivors. And every law I was taught as to how to walk through the world was through the orientation of the Holocaust. Like, you don't get in lines. uh, You know, our people have stood in enough lines. You always get involved. If you see anything that you don't understand that's going on with a neighbor, you get involved. Mm. The, like, course of bureaucracy is always to be questioned um we were taught to sort of look at our friends and wonder whether or not they would hide us if we ever needed to be hidden so i think like very much the theology that i was raised in was a, a theology of the holocaust And it,
4: that wasn't like a grim joke like hey you know the joneses around the corner do you think they would hide us that it wasn't it wasn't funny it was serious when your family talked about that
11: Yeah, it was really serious. And it was, um, so, I mean, my father was a refugee from Hungary. He had to leave with his father one day, you know, pretending that they were going to Austria for tooth surgery. And it was, you know, certain neighbors who were able to help them get out and get the right paperwork to get out. So my dad wasn't just raised with the stories, but like, it's very real for him that like, at any moment you can have to leave your country. And this is true, you know, this is the lived truth of probably half the globe, right? That at any moment you might have to leave. Mm. And so keep your eye out for who could help you. Mm. But also at any moment someone else might be the person who needs to leave or needs help. So keep your eye out Mm. as to who you can help. Even just, you know, a seamstress who lived next door to my dad's parents hid my grandparents' wedding album. They got married before the war and both survived, which is wild, but we have their wedding pictures because this woman saved them for us. Mm. And like, this was not like a great heroic act, like she didn't risk anything. And yet, right, like my family is very grateful to her. And so like, what are the things that you can do literally for your neighbors? And I watched my parents do that my whole childhood. And that was all Holocaust
8: response.
4: You're describing ways to, ways to be and, and behaviors that are attached to your grandparents' survival of the Holocaust, but you specifically called it a theology. Yeah. How did your grandparents' experience in the Holocaust, and then by extension, your parents' experience mm-hmm. as, as children of that, how did that shape your perception of whether or not there's a God? Yeah.
11: I asked my dad once about God, and he said, if there's a God, he hates us. And by us he meant the jewish people Mm -hmm. that you know jews are constantly persecuted you know when i was a kid it was in ethiopia and yemen but right like that my dad's historical understanding of jews is that sort of every generation you know there's an attempt at total eradication um And, you know, I grew up around Iranian Jews in Los Angeles who had, you know, moved from Iran because of that and Russia. And so this was also something I was very much just exposed to. Um, And I I understand that that can sound paranoid, but I also don't think it is. But anyway, so, yeah, the belief was that, of course, there's no God because what God Mm -hmm. would do this? But I think that the absence of God can be really beautiful. It means it's our responsibility to take care of each other on this earth and um, and that everything courageous and beautiful that we do is, is on us and like we do that. And love gets us to do these really altruistic things. And so I th- see my atheism very much as an act of optimism, as an act of, it is therefore our job to make this world as good of a place as possible for as many people as possible.
4: Do you remember any prayers in your home when you were growing up to God specifically? I mean, did your did your parents do that?
11: Yeah, we did Friday night dinner, uh, Shabbat dinner. So we did the prayer over the wine, over the challah, um, over the meal, over the uh, lights. My father would bless the three children. Um, and my grandparents, when it was at their house, would bless all seven grandchildren. It You did it. It wasn't to god you did it because it's what you did as because we are jews and mm-hmm. that's what jews do mm-hmm. and it's just like ungrateful not to i don't mm. know my grandfather was not only an atheist but like really spat in the face of religion a lot of his life he had a very complicated relationship with religion but when his wife of 50 years my grandmother passed away He went to temple every day, twice a day, to say the mourner's prayer for her. And when it wasn't time to be reciting the Kaddish, he would read the LA Times. Like he was not following the service at all, but then would stand up and do the Kaddish. And we asked him if he thought it mattered, if like God was paying attention or if, you know, my grandma heard him or anything. And he was like, no, it's just what she deserves. Hmm. And so, Yeah, there still didn't seem to be any sort of like belief in God. It was just that's how you show someone you love them is they die knowing that that is what you will do for them. And then you honor that commitment and do it.
4: How have you fixed on on atheism instead of taking an agnostic approach i mean yeah which would li- which would leave open the possibility that that something is out there something bigger than us than we just it's impossible to know how are you so firm i um
11: i see myself as like part of a tapestry i i'm a chaplain and so i see myself as like one of the things that religion has to have on offer one i would like to be one of the positive things that religion has on offer i think religion has a lot of great things and i think atheist chaplains are a necessary part of that tapestry Mm -hmm. someone who is gonna say no it just sucks that your mom died she isn't in a better place it just sucks she's just gone you're just not gonna talk to her again and like absolutely sit with someone in that um i i think that like i have a role and a call on this planet to like to be that person Mm -hmm. to be um most of the community members who i work with and serve are ex-evangelical ex-mormon have somehow been really hurt by traditional religion Mm -hmm. and so to be a place where i'm like that's just never gonna happen here feels really important to me um it sort of having that boundary creates a safe space um or a safer space at least and then i also just to me it's about the afterlife i just like i i think the afterlife is a tool of oppression for the most part obviously with big exceptions say more say more it's really easy to say to someone Like, it's great that you're suffering in this life because you'll get your just rewards in the next life. It is something – it is a form of Christianity that has been taught to enslaved people across the globe, you know, for Mm -hmm. 700 years. I think that it is a way to keep people from revolting, (laughs) um, telling them that they're going to get their just desserts in the next life. Um, And, yeah, I – there are very few forms of the afterlife that are appealing to me. I don't like the idea of the prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. I don't I, – I need things to have, like, good results. On. I'm results-oriented, Rachel. I want them to have <laughs> good results on this planet. I'm data-driven in my religion. And so no afterlife, which makes, like, no room for God, because I want us to be solving these problems on, on –
4: this planet and you don't think people are alive you don't think you can hold both those ideas at the same time
11: i think i intellectually can i think that um i don't want to i want to like marvel in the beauty of like the fact that lions exist and despair at the fact that they're Dying from overheated, being overheated, because we've like ruined this planet, and not leave myself the option to put a silver lining on it. Of like, well, you know, everything goes to dust, and 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 not saying that religious people have only cheap grace. I just don't want to even give myself that opportunity. I want to just confront the realities Mm. of the suffering. Uh and I don't think enough people take that position and so and I feel very like I was raised to take that position I don't think everybody should I was raised to be like no your cousins died and they're not in a better place they're just dead and the world is worse because they were not able to grow um and so I feel like this is a muscle that I have and I don't know why. It's messed up, but I do. I think it's a gift that I have to offer, (laughs) my atheism.
4: When did you start to see things in literature that you defined as sacred?
11: Yeah, I, I, I think my first experience in the... I am going to just sound like any religious person now, right? Like my first time seeing God, but like my first time feeling the sacredness of literature. I was, I was nine years old and I had burnt my hand. And so I wasn't allowed to take the ERBs, the California licensing, like exams as a fourth grader, you know, the uh, standardized tests. Oh, right. Because yeah. I couldn't hold I couldn't hold a pencil and so I couldn't take the scantron thing. So I sat in Mrs. Horowitz's fourth grade class and she handed me Caddy Woodlawn. And so I got to sit there and read while everyone else took the ERBs. And I just felt so seen by this book. I was like I don't know this book. I was a very oh my God, you will love it. <laughs> It's by Carol Brink, I think is her name. She wrote it in the 1930s. It's based on the stories of her grandmother like as a pioneer girl in Wisconsin in the 1860s. And Caddy is this, you know, like, she's just this tomboy who's constantly disappointing her mother because she's not more ladylike. She doesn't want to do the things that other girls want to do. And she's just, like, mad all the time. And it... I was, you know, it was the late '80s, early '90s in Los Angeles, California, where I was a Jewish kid. Like, and you were distinctly. also mad all the time. <laughs> and I was mad all the time. And the fact that Caddy was nothing like me, mm. the fact that someone a hundred in, you know, thirty years prior to me had the exact same feelings. Yeah, I was like, oh my god, I'm not alone, right? Like, I'm not. Like this author sees me. She's mm. she sees me. And looking back, right, like that is the feeling of God's love, right? That like someone sees the part of you that you hate in yourself and cherishes it and is like, no, like you're not alone. Mm -hmm. I see that and it's beautiful. Um, And so I took the book and I gave it to my mom. And I was just sort of like, mom, can you read this? And she read it and she wrote me a note in the front cover. And I I have the book um, saying... I. Thank you for lending me this. I particularly loved what was said on page 194 and I went to page 194 and it was the conversation where Caddy's mom is saying to her, like, I think you're wonderful. I love your anger. Uh, And I was just like, right? And I was just like, oh, like literature can make me feel seen and it can be this like point of connection or communion between two people. And then I had those experiences in other phases of my life with Jane Eyre and Harry Potter. And it's like, oh, right, like books make us have these ecstatic feelings of being seen and then can make us feel connected to others. Mm -hmm. Like that, that seems very similar to religion.
1: That was atheist chaplain and author Vanessa Zoltan speaking with NPR's Rachel Martin. For part two of their conversation, tune in at the same time next week as they continue their discussion about the sacred power of literature. I don't think I love Jane.